This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Susan Thompson of Colgate University, a host on New Books Network and African Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for tuning in today. My guest is Julianne Okat-Bitek, a poet and scholar. She's written a wonderful book, which I hope to discuss um, in great detail, 100 Days, published by the University of Alberta Press in 2015. Um, Julianne, welcome. Thank you. I, I don't even know where to start with this wonderful book. Why a book of poetry about the Rwandan genocide, I guess, is the most obvious place to start for us. I, I, and I suppose the most obvious answer to that would be poetry is what I do best, so I couldn't write in, other, in another genre. But it was also um, a place where I can most easily go to reflect on what it means to remember genocide 20 years afterwards. Right. Yes, that's one thing that really popped out to me is you started writing 20 years after. So 20 years, for those who don't know, is um, 2014. The genocide occurred um, formally between April and July 1994. Um, Hutu chauvinist political elites, military elites um, targeted um, ethnic Tutsi on the basis of their ethnicity. At least 500,000 um, Tutsi Rwandans died. Rwandans of all ethnicities, of course, died. Um, one thing that I think your your work does so well is it shows not only the human cost, but you bring the landscape in as a character. Can you talk about that? How do you narrate through poetry as academic genre? Because you've published with an academic press, which I also find really fascinating. Um, the hum- the humanity of of the Rwandan genocide. Um, I was thinking at that time about how when terrible events happen to us, uh, we're mostly thinking about ourselves as individuals, perhaps as families, maybe as communities, but we're always in context and we're always um, on location. So I wanted to think about how um, whatever is happening to us, whoever us may be, is also happening in a particular place, and therefore that place may be a witness or maybe an absorber of what's going on, maybe a comfort, maybe a betrayal, right? Um, because the event would be out of your reality and therefore shocking, traumatic, and so what do you do with that reality around you, right? So yes. that's some of what I was thinking about. Well, I think you do so well as someone who studies um, Rwanda. I've studied Rwanda for probably 25 years myself, is that you bring this human dimension that is so lacking in scholarly texts. Of course, there's lots of anthropologists and others who study Rwandans themselves. 
but you have this um, almost ephemeral quality to the poems. The landscape is there. Um, the, you have that sense of fear, that sense of anxiety, that sense of grief in the material. How did you sit down to do this? And like, what sort of prep did you have to do? Is this something that came from within you or did you need to read um, poetry, um, novels, watch documentaries, read scholarship? How do you produce such a human volume from such what, what, what we would perceive to be an inhuman set of actions, the, the acts of genocide? Mm, I think to, to answer that, I'd have to think about the fact that it was 20 years in the making. So it wasn't as if I looked at the calendar and said, mm, it's been 20 years, let's write a book now, right? Yeah. Um, I had been thinking not just about what happened in Rwanda, but as a, uh, an actually woman from Northern Uganda, I was absolutely cognizant about the war that was happening in Northern Uganda between the Lord's Resistance Army and the government of Uganda in which tens of thousands, maybe, I, I don't know, loads yeah. and loads of people were kidnapped, tens of thousands at least I know of children were taken from their families. Um, and we East Africans, Africans, humans, listening to these events happening, it, it, it felt helpless. And, and so I didn't think about the research. I thought about what, it sounds like what the voice of somebody from a landscape like that would sound like. And so I think the biggest exercise I did was in listening and tapping into voices that I, I hadn't heard and writing those down, right? Yeah. And so who did you rely on? Did you go to Rwanda? Did you draw from the deep well that you have in as someone of Northern Ugandan descent and the Asholi tradition? Or how, how do you What's the process to emote mass atrocity? I think that's what's so compelling about your book is that you're basically tracking us day by day in the inner life worlds of those who lived through uh, um, an inhumane act. And of course, I'm thinking here of the American poet Maya Angelou. She says, if we're human, everything human lives that lives in us. And that's a paraphrase, obviously, but the quote unquote, inhumanity of Rwanda exists in each and every one of us. And one thing we can imagine is in a different context, we could actually have been forced to participate um, in the genocide, whether as someone who was targeted or someone who was charged with um, killing or rescuing or all the different acts that reduce violence. In that, in that way, thinking of Maya Angelou, how do you approach individuals to share their stories through poetry? Um, I, I have to say that I had also been working with uh, Dr. Erin Baines at UBC mm -hmm. uh, on the stories of women who were formerly abducted by the Lord's Resistance Army. And so I was working with those transcripts and using those transcripts to flesh out stories of what happened to them. Right? And in that role, I was not a poet, so to speak, but I did the same kind of exercise of listening deeply to what somebody might want to be saying about their experience. Um, and I think the most important lesson from that class was that, um, from that class, from that time together with Erin, also, we also taught a class on witnessing together, um, was to think about witnessing not just as a, a witness, not just as a person who reports an event, but then will relay it and how to relay the event 
in a way that doesn't just define um, the person to whom it happened to as a victim, but more than that, right? Um, and so looking for voices that would speak of agency, looking for voices so that it's not just, say, the Western-trained um, academic who has the only voice in the text and everybody else is just speaking to them. Um, and also looking for other ways of connecting what happened to a particular person to what happens to people across the world through different experiences, right? So really, truly, it was about listening and tapping into that, and first as an actually woman. I think that's the power of the collection is you, you hear the silences. You hear, I think, when you read the poems, um, the whispers of the trees and of the, and of the hills, but also of Rwandans themselves. One thing you did that I found so interesting is that you start with day 100 and the book proceeds backwards to day one. And you get this sense as you read through each word is clearly carefully chosen, carefully crafted. The poetry like in structure is just so stunning, but uh, you also get this sense of landscape coming together with individuals is that something you did purposefully? Like if you visited Rwandan, have you felt the hills? And I asked this question from my own experience. Um, I lived in Rwanda for a long time and we would cross the border by road into Uganda and you'd have this just completely different sense. The air was less heavy. People were more jovial. It was easier to get a soda or just to, you know, share community with someone on the roadside or whatever. Um, is there, is that in your poetry? Is, is um, I should be clear and say that I have never been to Rwanda to this day. And, mm -hmm. and so I was also cognizant of the, the question that might be asked. So what gives you the right to write about Rwanda if you're not from Rwanda? And uh, I'm always firm in my um, position as somebody who's a witness and somebody from that region. So maybe not Rwanda in particular and not that landscape, right, of the thousand hills. Um, but as somebody from, say, the neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. And somebody who understands, like other people in this, from the same region, the effects of colonialism, the effects of uh, post-colonial violence, the effects of old traditions um, and, and how we live in the present. And, you know, as an African person, we cannot continue to depend on a, a Western person to come and tell us what happened because there may be more objective, that's the idea, or because they have no connection with mm, the trauma of the land, that, that kind of thing, right? Um, so to, to return to the question of starting with the day 100, day 100 first was because I was responding to uh, the photographs of Wangeshi Mutu on Facebook, and she had started with day 100. As, but as we walked our way down to day one, and I wrote about this in a uh, in an essay for Zocalo Press, I think it was, mm -hmm. um, the complication of counting down the days. Because what happens when you reach to day one? Do the days stop? Does the trauma stop? Does the war stop? So counting down to one was to complicate the idea of the whole genocide, the massacres, the killings, the pain being um, um, inside 100 days. So it really isn't about 100 days. It's about so much that happened before, during, 
and after those 100 days, which also then spilled out into other borders, right? Um, I have family from Rwanda, right? I have friends from Rwanda, many of them who grew up in Uganda because of what had happened in Uganda, many of them before the Rwanda genocide. And right. so it's, I think it's part of our responsibility, we who are from that region, to speak up, right? Somebody said, if your neighbor's house is burning, do you let it burn because it's it's not yours that's burning? You have to do something to put help without the fire, right? So that's my small attempt at witnessing. It is, to my mind, um, a stunning attempt because you approach Rwanda, uh, um, you approach the poetry about Rwandans and Rwanda as a scholar. How do you mediate, you know, poem? you open this interview by saying, I wrote poetry because that's where I find myself um, most at home. Does poetry help you become a better scholar or are the two independent of each other? And that's, I want to pivot the conversation to the University of Alberta Press. What, what, what? So what, what led you to choose that press as academics were always mediating publication? And I am curious about that in the context of this work. Um, uh, uh, like the other questions I've answered, um, I'm going to go about it in a roundabout way. Um, <laughs> a friend of mine suggested, why don't you try University of Alberta Press? I said, really, it's a university press. And they said, well, they also publish poetry. And I said, cool. So, so then I went there, right? Okay. Uh, but then... Um, and I know it's good for an academic uh, poet to publish in a university press. So that's not a terrible thing. Also, as a poet, publishing in a regular press doesn't mean you're going to be a rich, rich person. So it's not for capital gain, but it's for, I think it's for me, most importantly, it's for um, documentation. And maybe the more... Um, it's more, there's more chance of people to take it seriously in the university setting when it's published in a university press, right? Sure. So it opens up spaces for it to be discussed because it was published in a university press. Uh, that said, um, I, I think of myself as a poet and a scholar, but not differently, but both at the same time. So for me, poetry is just as academic as any academic text, um, mostly because uh, in the kind of poetry I practice and uh, the ones that I enjoy, um, that kind of genre allows me to uh, not stay in my head, but experience the full gamut of whatever is being exposed to me. So I can cry about it and think about it, and it's fine, right? Um, it doesn't have to stay dry. And, and uh, having grown up as a as the daughter of a poet who was an academic as well, um, I've never been able to tease out the difference between the creative and critical practice, right? For me, it's always been the same thing. I grew up yeah. in that. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, embrace, I embrace both. Let me ask you a slightly different question. Um, how do you write your scholarship? Of course, you know, academics are to produce journal articles, book chapters. <laughs> We're always under peer review. Uh, I see you cringing on our Zoom call here. What's going on over there? <laughs> it took me a long time to embrace myself as a poet scholar because mm. um, the whole business of being peer-reviewed and peer-reviewed then is a collection of peers who uh, are reading your work to a particular standard that they've been trained to, for instance, right? And so when they see this work that comes with footnoted poetry, um, 
the first question is, what is this? This is not an essay. This is not what we usually, this is not pages and pages of prose. Um, the, uh, an essay that a piece I'm, I've been working on, um, <laughs> it was um, a poetic reflection on, 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 on something and they wanted me to write my methodology and <laughs> I didn't know how to write <laughs> methodology of it, right? So yeah, uh, I cringe because I am trying to be true to myself and write, take something seriously and write it seriously. And, uh, and, and I sometimes feel I'm up against um, a genre of writing that doesn't have very much space for people like me, right? So half the battle is saying, it's okay, it's, it's fine, just, just publish it or consider it at least, right? Um, but then it gets published. And I think my academic work scholarship has mostly been mixed um, prose and poetry. At least there's some kind of creative aspect of it. Um, and those who have published it, uh, they're okay. <laughs> yeah, they recognize that. I yeah. think that's how I came to your work. So I should say to the audience, I am you know, trained as a political scientist. Um, I read poetry in my private life to understand my private life. I've never turned to academic um, prose or poetry to understand, but understand my academic life. But when I was reading your collection, it really collapsed for me that distance between foreign researcher and Rwandan foreign researcher and the, you know, quote unquote victim. Because as you said earlier, that moment of victimhood is just one tiny part of the broader human experience. And what I found so powerful as someone has great admiration for Rwandan Rwandans is that um, full flurry of human activity in the context of genocide. So if we think of war as a set of social practices, you know, war is, um, as Christine Sylvester says, the injuring of bodies. It's not about grand state politics or uh, military strategy or things like this, just the basic injuring of bodies you see the harm on both sides, the, the, those who were targeted and those who did the targeting um, lack a different kind of humanity, but also regain a particular kind of humanity. And I, you know, to be fully honest, I probably would have never come across your collection if it weren't published in an academic book, just because of the demands of my home university, the kind of publishing we have to do, the kind of teaching we have to do. One thing though, I, I can say, and this is my question will come from here. My students love to read your poetry, um, not because the topic is um, easy. Um, they recognize, I think, your, your aspiration of witnessing. Um, but what they find is that they're like, I could see this as spoken word. I could see this as hip hop. Can you speak um, to us about like the traditions? Is there a particular oral or written tradition in which you situated your, your, your poems? Um, I could say that because it's poetry, it comes out of an oral tradition. And I mm -hmm. think this is true for many traditions across the world, even before the advent of writing. And, and our memory is mostly encapsulated in poetic form, right? So that, and then also the, business of listening. I said this was about deep listening. So when you listen for a voice and it's trying to say something, um, and what you're trying to capture is also the rhythm of the speech patterns. Mm -hmm. um, 
and because it's poetry, then you can uh, include things like repetition. You can include things like rhythm inside it, right? So to make it, uh, to give it some mnemonics so that people can remember it because it's poetry, right? It needs to be remembered, not just to be articulated, but to be remembered, right? Um, so absolutely, yes, it comes from the oral, oral traditions. It also comes from other um, traditions of poetry like church hymns. Hmm. A couple of hymns I've, I've used in the, the collection. Uh, and church hymns, because of our colonial histories and the present, many of us have sang the same songs over and over again. So if you just look at those words, you'll be able to hear them. And then, But I'll take that, that song apart and get it to produce something else, right? Yeah. So that's another form of poetic practice, yeah. Um, and so for those who are hearing the spoken word, um, I, they are probably reflecting the listening practice, right? Because I was hearing. And I want to also be clear is that, is that I wasn't hearing actual people, Rwandan right. people talking to me, but I was engaging in a... Uh, Someone might call it imagination, a focused kind of imagination, right? Um, uh, the only poem that I remember, okay, two poems, uh, two poems from 100 Days that I remember uh, is the what day 100 is because those were the first words that came to me. Um, it was the earth that betrayed us first. And I, and I heard that very clearly, right? Um, and so I, I wrote that down. Um, but day 97 is from um, a story that, we were told by a poet, right? And it's a poet, Yolanda Mukagasana. And she told us a story of her brother who prophesied that the, the, the genocide would happen. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because she's a poet and a storyteller. Her telling remained inside me for a long time. So part of my listening practice was just to, to bring that back because it was, I remembered it in form of a poem, right? Um, she's just released a book last year called It's Not My Time to Die. Um, it's very, very powerful. And in it, she has a story of her brother telling us that story that she told us in Colombia years ago um, and a photograph of him, which is mm -hmm. really painful to see now because it's, it's no longer a voice in a poem, but a person with a name and a family and a photograph, right? So there's those kinds of resonances, which might begin in a poetic line, but end up as a reflection of somebody's life, right? I think that's really an important point for listeners, you know, undergraduate students in particular, perhaps to take away. Deep listening does not necessarily need to be an in-person experience. You can also listen within a text. And of course, poetry gives a particular genre to that because there is you know, and we talked about this a little bit, you spoke of witnessing, we must be mindful of moving into voyeurism, mm -hmm. uh, particularly as like, I think, foreigners to these places, you spoke of being an African of the region who wanted to write about the place. And that leads me to a question about your collaborators, you spoke about Yolande and her poetry as a Rwandan, I have read some of her memoirs, she's now written, I think, three books. Mm -hmm as a survivor of the genocide. Most of them are in French, but she's now publishing in English. And then you mentioned the work of your Kenyan collaborator. I can't remember her name right now. Wangeshi Mutu. Wangeshi Mutu. So how did these um, relationships emerge? And I asked the question about why the relationships emerge 
I'm a big believer just as an interpretivist scholar, everything we do is in relation to someone else or, or, you know, we honor ideas, we honor landscapes, we honor people, um, we honor writings. I asked the question in that vein. Can you tell us about your, your, your working relationships and collaborations with these two women? Um, for Yolande Bukagasana, it wasn't a real collaboration, really. It, she was an inspiration, right? And mm. hers was the constant presence that I had with me as I was writing, even though uh, we don't live together, even in the same country, right? But um, I felt her company, uh, this is a very strange claim to make. I've never made it out loud before. I felt her company as I, as I and this is why I dedicated the book to her. I met her in a poetry festival in um, Medellin, Medellin, Colombia, um, years and years ago. And um, she was there as a poet. I was there as a poet too. Um, so, and, and we didn't strike a friendship, but we were poets. And we were the African poets of the poets that were invited, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but after she told me that story, I looked for her. I looked for her email. I searched her out and I could not find her. I could not find her until more recently. Now we have reconnected right um, and it, it's a, it, and I've since written another essay inspired by that encounter in Colombia for Wasafiri magazine for Wangeshi Mutu it was a little bit different uh, Wangeshi is a Kenyan American artist she lives in New York um, and I've long admired her work she's got really powerful powerful um, abstract she mostly works with collage but she does sculpture she does painting um, and I'd first encountered her work at the Vancouver Art Gallery here in Vancouver. And it was alongside uh, an exhibit called European Masters, which was really strange because she's not European, right? Um, so it was, you know, you walk through the gallery and you see um, Picasso and Matisse and who and who. And then there's this Wangeshi Mojo. And I stopped in my tracks because hers was the kind of art I had never seen anywhere. And so years later, when on Facebook, you know how you follow people you admire, right? Mm-hmm. I saw that she had made this photograph of a woman holding a sign with 100. Immediately, I understood what she was doing, even though she didn't say it was a wordless photograph, right? You know, a, a captionless photograph. Um, and so I wrote to her and I said, hey, I <laughs> think I see what you're doing. Can I write with you? And she said in her email, in her message, I was just wishing I had words to write. I can only take photographs. And so the photographer and the poet came together, right, to do this. So we kept each other company for this, the, the 99 days that followed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I have since done other collaborations. And it's usually, I mean, I have one right now in Vancouver um, working with a Black Canadian uh, artist, visual artist. So she's got... Uh, photographs and I've got paintings uh, not paintings <laughs> I wish she's got uh, po- I've got poetry which is accepted from 100 days but represented differently so it works together with her uh, photography right and it's to me it's called unsettled so this is about um, being unsettled on these lands as people who are not imagined to can to be settled and also as people who are not comfortable with the social political happenings of the time right um, it's, it's it's a huge piece of art. Uh, it covers covers the university windows, right? Street oh, level. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's not common to see black women's art in downtown Vancouver. So that's it's pretty big deal. Uh, but again, collaboration meaning that two forms, two artists, two people who think about who are thinking about the same thing come together and then produce something that neither of them could have produced on their own. It's a powerful way of uh, making art or making knowledge. I think. I think it's so lovely in the context of your book that story because your book, to my mind, should be required reading for every military leader, every Joe Biden, every politician to remind them of the human costs of the decisions that they make. Uh, you know, Paul Kagami in the RPF, we can talk about him. I don't think we need to. He's not the point of this collection in any way, shape, or form, because he has suffered too. He has suffered in his own way. Um, but I've, I've kept you now for more than 30 minutes, which is longer than I promised. Do you have um, a question for me or anything that I failed to ask that you would like to say about your collection before we wrap up? Um, I don't have a question, but I have a statement of gratitude. Um, I'm really uh, grateful to academics, uh, in particular teachers like you, who have taken this little book and shown it to to students and other people in the community as something to be considered, right? Um, And it's taken so long for African writers to be taken seriously outside of Africa. Um, and so I feel like this little book is, is contributing to that. And, and so thank you. Yeah, it is a glorious book. Um, Julianne Okapitek, it's been a delight um, to have you. And um, you've been listening to New Books Network and African Studies. See you next time. 